Hey, have I got a real treat for you past perfectionists. Perfectionistas? We'll keep workshopping it. So remember when last week our fabulous guest, Lindsay Weber, was asked, well, why am I telling you when I can just show you? Time machine, time for a flashback. What famous magician died on Halloween night in 1926? I don't know, Harry Houdini, the only famous magician. Correct. Well, Perfectionas, have I got a trick or treat for you. On our previous show, Not Past It, we did an episode all about our good pal Harry. And we are bringing you that episode right here today. And I'll be back at the end of the episode with the answer to this question. Which came first? Harry Houdini's first successful straitjacket escape in public, or the publication of Arthur Conan Doyle's novel, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. All right, get your answers ready. And in the meantime, here is, not past it, Houdini, the OG Ghostbuster. Ooh. High atop the Knickerbocker Hotel in Los Angeles, in the year 1936, stand a man and a woman, dressed to the nines in formal wear. He, sporting a long goatee, she, a shock of white hair and a double strand of pearls. They appear ghostly, withered. Behind them, the old Hollywood sign lights up the eerie night sky. In front of them sit 300 star-studded guests, The date is October 31st, Halloween. At 8 p.m. sharp, the goateed man begins to speak. Now let us bow our heads in meditation and prayer. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, please now, the time is at hand. Make yourself known to us. Next to these two souls sits a shrine, consisting of a trumpet, a bell, and a pair of handcuffs. This is no ordinary gathering. This is a seance. We want the evidence, the truth, in the name of humanity and love. If there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence. But the people aren't just waiting for any old spirit. No. Tonight, they've gathered to welcome back one soul in particular. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. The great Harry Houdini, the handcuff king, master of magic, prince of air. Simply the greatest magician who ever lived. As the crowd waits for the spirit of Houdini to appear, the sky above Los Angeles fills with angry clouds. Sobs bellow up from within the congregation. But after some time, nothing happens. So, Bess Houdini, the magician's wife, she calls it. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry.
the great escape artist couldn't escape the great beyond. But it wasn't for lack of trying. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories and the people we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history. And this October, we're telling you the stories that still haunt our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On October 31st, 1936, 85 years ago this week, Bess Houdini held the last official seance for the love of her life, Harry Houdini. The master magician told her he'd return from the beyond if he could. But that if was a big one. See, Houdini was out to prove something. Not just the obvious question of whether a person can come back from the dead. This man was on a tortured, lifelong quest to reckon with the forces we can't see. Let's commune after the break. Ask someone to name a magician and they will tend to name Houdini. He's still the most famous name in magic. That's John Cox, a self-described Houdini historian with a blog called Wild About Harry. I've spent my life studying obsessively the life of Harry Houdini. John says, while you might think of Houdini as a magician, he was really more of an escape artist. In his heyday, in the early 1900s, he was pulling stunts like emerging from underwater coffins, wriggling out of straitjackets while suspended, upside down over swells of anxious crowds. And embedded within each act was a promise Houdini made to his audiences. No prison can hold me. No hand or leg irons or steel locks can shackle me. No ropes or chains can keep me from my freedom. And Houdini went about proving it every night on stage. And you could be there and witness. And sometimes it was something funny. You know, the University of Pennsylvania football team would sew him inside of a giant football and he would escape. Sometimes it was terrifying, the water torture cell in which if he didn't escape, he would die. For Houdini, that burden of evidence showing his work to all those eyewitnesses was essential. Houdini never presented himself as supernatural. He said, no, This is all natural. I can just figure it out. I can be presented with any situation, and I can figure out how to escape, and so can anyone. This is the human spirit. This isn't a supernatural act. Houdini believed in the human spirit, that a person of strong will and strong mind could make any kind of magic happen. Well, just about any. See, when Houdini was first getting into magic, back in the 1890s, there was a different kind of magic that was also popular. When he became interested in magic, during that time, there were magicians, but also there was the rise of spiritualism and mediums. And spiritualism was essentially the belief that one could communicate with the other side, one could communicate with the dead, and you would do that through a medium. Spiritualism dates back to 1848, to these two women known as the Fox sisters. Katie and Maggie Fox claimed that they were able to communicate with spirits in their upstate New York farmhouse. That's Lisa Morton. 
She's the author of Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances. And the spirits would come to them via rapping noises. And people would then sit around this table and ask questions, and the spirits would rap out answers. Some theorized that the Fox sisters were actually just playing an April Fool's prank on their mother the first time around. And it sort of got out of hand. In just a few years, it had become a whole religious movement, spiritualism. And the sisters were charging a dollar per show. Basically, these seances where they would try to conjure the dead. But Lisa says just a few years later, in 1852, a team of skeptics came together to take a deeper look at this practice. There was a committee of scientists and investigators who got together and they discovered that the girls were making these rapping sounds by cracking their toe knuckles in a very particular way. Yup, toe knuckles. Didn't expect that, did you? They could crack it loudly enough that people in auditoriums could make out these rapping sounds. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway. So the Fox sisters were totally debunked, but it didn't really matter. Spiritualism was here to stay. The religious movement really took off in popularity, especially in the wake of the Civil War, which saw such extreme upheaval and human loss. By the time Houdini was getting really into magic— In the early 1890s, spiritualism was a pretty prominent feature in American life. Houdini was drawn to it, but he had some hesitation. As John says, Mediums are magicians gone bad. They're magicians who don't tell you they're doing magic tricks. He did want to believe, and he was always searching his whole life, if it was true, if you really could communicate with the other side. By John's account, This tension Houdini felt about this more mysterious side of magic was really sparked following his father's death in 1892. Houdini's dad had been a rabbi, an immigrant who brought the family over from Hungary when Houdini was just four years old, back in 1878. Houdini, that's a stage name, by the way. His real name was Eric Weiss. The family had settled in Wisconsin, in a little town called Appleton. Times were hard and money was tight. And when Houdini's father died, he left the family in a precarious financial situation. Harry, who was 18 at the time, was concerned primarily about his mom. Houdini just loved his mother. In fact, he just did everything for his mother. His drive had everything to do with taking care of his mother and and pleasing his mother. In the wake of his father's death, Houdini felt this responsibility even more. He wanted to make sure his mom was taken care of. Houdini's dad had taken out a life insurance policy, but somewhere along the line, the dad had fallen behind on payments, meaning the family couldn't collect the benefits. Harry didn't know how to rectify the situation, so he decided to get creative. He goes to a spirit medium, apparently with his mother, Houdini thought that through this medium, he could talk to his father from beyond the grave and maybe, I don't know, get some advice about the insurance thing. Houdini had pawned his father's watch to pay for the medium. And when they got started, 
Instead of giving Houdini and his mother any specific information about the insurance policy, the medium just kept going in circles about how happy the dead dad was in the afterlife. Houdini could see immediately, he said, you know, this is very strange. Why isn't our our father giving us the specific information we need? He was suspicious immediately. Being the budding magician that he was, Houdini was familiar with the lengths people would go to pull off a trick. And this seemed to be one of those moments, at the expense of his mother. Ever the mama's boy, this did not sit well with Houdini. He began to reconsider the legitimacy of mediums. He realizes that a great many of them are fakes, but he still holds out hope that maybe there's the real thing. Around this same time, Houdini's magic career was floundering. He still needed to make good on his promise to take care of his mom. So he hustled, performing magic acts with his new wife, Bess. The two had married in 1894, when Harry was 20. He and Bessie are traveling around. They're performing with circuses. They're performing with medicine shows. Houdini worked dive museums all the time. This was a very kind of a cheap venue where you could go in and for a dime you would see a selection of acts. And they were pretty, pretty sketchy. And he got the nickname Dime Museum Harry because he performed in them so often. But he could always pick up some money in a dime museum. But this wasn't enough. Fed up with the lack of success, Houdini had an idea. Bessie would go into a trance And she was actually the one who would contact the other side and deliver messages. That's right. Despite his bad experience in the past, Houdini started doing his own medium shows. While Bess was in a trance, Houdini would translate her messages using a mind-reading trick popular among magicians. Basically, they had their own code words that meant one thing for the audience, but were a secret alphabet for the pair. They also had another signature trick that had people lining up across the Midwest. They'd pick people out of the audience and predict things about their lives. The methods they used to make these so-called predictions, though, were actually pretty shady. Before performances, they would often visit the local cemetery with the town gossip monger, taking notes on family histories as they walked from grave to grave. They'd scour newspapers and absorb stories around the dinner table at their boarding house. They'd also purchase books of information collected by other local mediums on their clientele. So on stage, they weren't exactly divining anything, just kind of using research tricks, talking to the right people, and getting lucky. After a while, though, this whole practice was starting to wear on Houdini even when the predictions weren't bought and sold. In 1897, Houdini and Bess had a fateful encounter before a performance in Canada. They came into town. Houdini spotted uh, a boy being scolded by his mother because he was riding his bicycle recklessly. And Houdini sort of filed this away. That night, the mother just happened to be at their performance. So Bess digs in. And she says, your son is in danger of crashing on his bicycle and breaking his arm. And, you know, there you go, just a little message from beyond. But what happened was the following day, the mother 
comes back to them in hysterics, accusing them of black magic, saying, my boy did fall off his bicycle and he did break his right arm, exactly as you said. While the other researched predictions didn't seem to bother Houdini, this one was different. And Houdini kind of cited that as, you know what, let's get out of this business. We're going down a bad road here. So the couple left mediumship behind and returned to their magic act. It took some time to find success, but right before the turn of the century, their act really started to take off on the vaudeville circuit. They did more escaped acts, and Houdini got, like, really good at getting out of handcuffs. Which, side note, as PR stunts, he happily performed at police stations around the globe. His escapes grew more and more complex, and audiences everywhere were stunned. How does he do it? Rumors swirled that his talents were not of this world. He decided to set the record straight in the most public way he could. Ladies and gentlemen, I take great pleasure in introducing my latest invention, the water cell. In case you missed that, Houdini is introducing the world to his latest trick, the water torture cell. By the way, these are the only recordings of Houdini left in existence from October 1914 in New York City. For this trick, his feet would be locked in stocks. He'd be dangled upside down and lowered into a tank of water with a glass front for easy viewing. And Houdini made sure to tell his audience the most important detail. There is nothing supernatural about it. I am willing to talk it to some. There's that word again, supernatural. Houdini never wanted people to think anything or anyone else was responsible for his feats. Remember, the guy was all about the strength of the human spirit. He could back up any trick of his with evidence. The word supernatural was also heavily associated with that other side of magic, mediums. Houdini knew that for the most part, they were just fooling people, and he wanted no part in it professionally. Personally, though, he still kind of wanted to believe. He was just looking for concrete evidence. His wife talks about how it would break my heart. We would go to these seances, and I would look at him, and he would just be so sincere, and he would just, his eyes would be closed, and he'd be so wanting for this to be the time where he could finally find a legitimate thing. And then afterwards, he would just be so disappointed that it was another fake. Not just disappointed, but at some point, pissed. Harry knew from experience mediums were taking advantage of people, often in their most vulnerable moments. They preyed on individuals who were grieving. At this particular time, people who lost loved ones in World War I or to the Spanish flu. They also targeted the elderly, scamming them out of precious money and possessions, even sometimes real estate. So yeah, Houdini did not like any of this. And so it's around this time that he begins to say, you know what, I'm beginning to think they're all fakes. 
I'm done giving the benefit of the doubt. I know the tricks and I'm going to start calling you out, which he begins to do. And it really becomes this wild third act for Houdini. He starts calling out mediums in the middle of their performances, sometimes even dressing up in elaborate disguises, then revealing his true identity in a dramatic flourish, pulling an undercover boss, if you will. For the most part, Houdini kept his ghost-busting relatively low-key until 1920. That's when he would meet a man who would change everything for him and take this feud to a whole nother level. But before we get to that, I must call upon the spirits. Spirits, spirits, are you there? I need your help. Please give us your wisdom from the other side and guide us to the break. Thanks. We're back from the beyond. Before our ghostly break, we learned all about Harry Houdini and how in trying to contact his deceased rabbi father, he got conned by a spiritualist medium instead. Though he never really gave up hope on the idea of contacting the dead, Houdini did go on to spend part of the early 20th century outing supernatural fraudsters. This practice ramped up when Houdini decided to befriend a man who was famous for writing a character who could crack any mystery. The author of the Sherlock Holmes series, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He was a huge spiritualist. That's Lisa Morton again our spiritualism expert. He wrote many books on the subject. He did lecture tours on the subject. Yeah, the guy was fully into mediumship. Houdini was interested in striking up an intellectual conversation with the author. He also wanted Doyle to introduce him to some mediums in England. Doyle was into it, and they developed a friendship. He and Houdini became friends. They became really interesting and good friends. And in the beginning of their friendship, I think Conan Doyle was out to convert Houdini. Of course, Doyle had been to a few of Houdini's shows and was convinced his magician friend was secretly a very powerful spiritualist medium. Houdini didn't care much about what Doyle thought. The men continued to nurture their friendship, even going on vacation together with their families. And it was on one of these vacations in Atlantic City in 1922 that some real cracks began to form in their relationship. At the time, Conan Doyle's wife had just taken up mediumship. So one afternoon, Conan Doyle says to Houdini, my wife would like to have a seance with you. And for the next hour, Conan Doyle's wife proceeded to engage in a medium practice called automatic writing, which was where supposedly the medium lets the spirit enter them and writes on paper. She wrote frantically for an hour. She produced 21 written pages purporting to be from Houdini's mother. And, well, you know, womp womp. Houdini took one look at the pages and was not very happy because, as he noted, my sainted mother didn't speak a word of English. Houdini, as we know, was an evidence man. And English writing from his German-speaking mother was decidedly not evidence of communing with the dead. 
He didn't express his disappointment or his high degree of skepticism to Doyle, though. He just kept his mouth shut. And Doyle read that silence in his own way. And Doyle thought, great, we've converted Houdini. Houdini expert John Cox again. But Houdini went about his business and was interviewed not long afterwards where he said, you know, I've never seen anything that's convinced me that it's possible. And Doyle said, how could you say that, Houdini? My wife gave you a seance. And he said, you know, I should have told you at the time, but I got problems with that. In the aftermath of this, the two men stayed friends, though they began to draw deeper into their own corners. They did rival lecture tours. While Doyle presented so-called evidence of spirits, like photographs and experiences with mediums, Houdini went for high drama. He added a third act to his magic show that was all about the scam of spiritualism. But the relationship really went downhill fast in 1924, when Houdini released a book he'd been writing. It was called A Magician Among the Spirits and was sort of a spiritualism debunking Bible. And he actually sent a copy of that to Conan Doyle. And Conan Doyle's copy we still have, and he has written across the title page a malicious book. Fair enough. I mean, Houdini did have a whole chapter in his book on Doyle himself. This seems to have been the fatal blow for the two men's friendship. Now that the relationship was completely dead, Houdini went full fraud hunter. He assembled what he called his very own secret service, hiring a small army of reporters and investigators to out-fraudulent mediums including some who catered to senators and prominent families like the Vanderbilts. A woman named Rose Mackenberg was one of the foremost investigators in this crew. In just two years, she took down 300 fake psychics across the country. Her best-known alias? Francis Rod. F. Rod. Get it? Fraud? Houdini spent a pretty penny on all of this. By 1926, this team was costing him the present-day equivalent of somewhere between forty dollars and $50,000 a year. How did the spiritualism community react to Houdini essentially exposing them? <laughs> well, they didn't like it. Um, he was enemy number one. Yeah, they, uh, they denounced him every way they could. And you see a lot of ugly stuff, of anti-Semitism was what was thrown at him. And they would call him, you know, Harry Weiss, which was always a little bit of a flag to use his real name. But they would say, you know, phony spirit medium Harry Weiss is attacking religion. And Houdini would say, I'm not attacking religion. My father was a rabbi. I believe in God. I believe in the afterlife. I'm just looking for evidence. And as a man of faith, Houdini felt mediums were mocking his own concept of God. Exasperated, he once asked, is the power of the Almighty so trivial that all he can produce is a tipped table and the ringing of a bell? Would the God that created the most breathtaking mountain ranges and spectacular waterfalls stoop to manifest something as vile and base as ectoplasm? 
In response to the attacks from the spiritualists, Houdini escalated his fraudster-finding campaign all the way to Congress. He was trying to get the U.S. government to pass a bill outlawing fortune tellers in the nation's capital. And between February and May of 1926, Congress actually met on four different days to discuss the matter. During these bizarre hearings, Houdini asked spiritualists to publicly prove their supernatural talents. He offered them $10,000 in cash on the spot if they could divulge the nickname Houdini's late father used to call him. He also challenged them to reveal the text of a sealed question. You know, something they should easily be able to do since they were psychic. Let's just say that none of them took the bait. They did feel free to hurl anti-Semitic attacks at Houdini, though, and to make their own predictions about his fate. In a hallway of the House of Representatives during one of the hearings, a medium approached Houdini and said, when November comes around, you won't be here. You'll be dead. Which might have been the only accurate premonition of the entire congressional circus. Later that year, in October of 1926, Houdini was in Montreal, Canada. And he gave a lecture there. On, on spiritualism, and he invited some students to visit him backstage, as he would do. And one of them, a student by the name of J. Gordon Whitehead, who by all accounts was sort of an oddball. He may have had a, a steel plate in his head from an accident. Anyways, J. Gordon Whitehead is there. And at one point he asked Houdini, is it true that you can be punched in the stomach as hard as you can and you can withstand the blow? Houdini told him, yep, rumor's true. So old steel plate head, J. Gordon Whitehead, punched the magician in the stomach five times. <clears throat> Houdini was sitting down at the time, and so he wasn't actually prepared to take the blows. Afterwards, Houdini was in serious pain. It continued into the following day, but he just ignored it. He and Bess made their way to the next stop on the tour. Bess insisted they call a doctor, who then insisted Houdini get to a hospital immediately. But Houdini said the show must go on. He went on stage with a 104-degree temperature. He struggled through his entire show, you know, collapsed between each act. And after the show was eventually persuaded to go to the hospital where they operated, and to their surprise, they realized, oh my gosh, he had appendicitis and his appendix have ruptured. And back then, you know, that's a death sentence. Houdini stuck it out for about a week. He died on Halloween 1926 at the age of 52. Famous worker of miracles succumbs to shackles of grim reaper. Houdini keeps his secrets. Tricks go to grave with magician. Wanted. More Houdinis. But if you thought death would stop Houdini from continuing his crusade against spiritualist mediums, you do not know Houdini. Well, before he died, he was well aware that if I pass away, mediums are going to descend on my wife with messages from me. And I want to give her protection. And so he said, let's come up with a code. And it was this beautiful code. It was essentially the word believe, but it would be spelled out using their old mind reading act from their earliest performing days. 
And so he said, and when they come to you, and they will say, great, you're talking to, 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 to my Houdini. What's he say? What's the code? Sometimes the way that people characterize the pact that he had with Bess and that people say he promised to come back. You know, he believed he could do it, so he promised her to come back. That wasn't what it was. The pact was a way for her to protect herself. For a decade after Houdini's death, mediums came out of their little fraud caves and tried every which way to communicate with him. On January 5th, 1929, there did seem to be a successful connection. A medium by the name of Arthur Ford correctly conjured the code. Newspapers went nuts. But the very next day, a reporter revealed that the entire conjuring was a fake. Bess, who was struggling with alcohol and thoughts of suicide, had coordinated the seance with the dashing young Ford. But finally, in 1936, a full 10 years after Houdini's death, Bess decided to put an end to her late husband's crusade once and for all, standing atop the Knickerbocker Hotel in Los Angeles, wearing a double strand of pearls. She held one final seance, waiting for the evidence. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. There was no proof, and it seemed there never would be. That's where the Houdini story ends, at least on this plane of existence. Though, of course, in a certain way, Houdini lives on in the hearts of his many fans, some of whom still hold seances every Halloween. For those fans, and for all of us, Houdini still inspires wonder. Even in death, he still moves us to believe in something we can't quite make sense of. So much of what Houdini was fighting against was the exploitation of belief. He saw the power belief could hold when he performed his magic to rapt audiences. And he held belief close in his own life. Belief in the higher power his rabbi father instilled in him. I suspect it's this reverence for belief, for faith, that pushed him to fish out the fraudsters with such righteous zeal and to seek out the hard evidence for himself that maybe the supernatural really could be within reach. Which feels very human of him. We're all seeking answers to life's big questions. We all have that tendency to reach out for something beyond us, especially when times are hard and we can't quite see a way out. I have to admit, I myself have turned to the mystical in my own times of uncertainty. Tarot, astrology, that kind of thing. And it has, at times, been incredibly helpful for me. Do I actually believe in it? Well, I just want to share one story with you. I saw a Turkish coffee reader a few months into the pandemic. I was feeling a little lost because, you know, reality had completely altered or whatever. I wanted an answer to what comes next. So I call this woman, 
and she picks up on my energy over Zoom, drinks the coffee for me. Then she launches into the reading. I'm seeing you alone on an empty stage, she says. You'll be doing some kind of performing. Expectations will be big, but you'll be fine as long as you work hard. And I'm getting a name, Zach. Zach's a good person to work with. A month after that conversation, I got a call. Hey, I'm doing this new history podcast, and we're looking for a host. That call was from Zach. Zach Stewart Pontier. You might know him as the executive producer of this really cool podcast called Not Past It. So, is it real? Is that evidence? Who knows? I choose to believe. And now, the answer to our which came first question. So, which came first? Harry Houdini's first successful straitjacket escape in public? Or the publication of Arthur Conan Doyle's novel, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes? And the answer is... The publication of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes! Yes, the novel from Arthur Conan Doyle came first, but not by much. The book was initially published in serial form in the Strand magazine from July 1891 to June 1892, before being published as a single volume in October of 1892. It introduced the world to the brilliant and deductive mind of Sherlock Holmes and became a classic of detective fiction literature. Houdini's first successful public straitjacket escape took place later, on January 6, 1893, in Poughkeepsie, New York. He performed the staring feat while hanging upside down from a bridge. The spectacle drew a large crowd and marked the beginning of his reputation as a master escape artist. Ah, don't you just love to live, laugh, and learn? Before we wrap up, I do want to give a shout out to some of our listeners who've left reviews. Shout out to Wellness. They said, heard about the show via the Daily Zeitgeist and am already such a fan. Shout out also to Michelle Pack. They said, a delight, super fun show. I love it. Thank you. And shout out to Katie underscore O apostrophe C. They wrote, loving listening. Finishing ep four at the moment, but I'll be listening to every ep. Smiley face. Ah, thank you all for your five-star reviews. You can't see me right now, but I'm doing little K-pop finger hearts at you. We love hearing from you all. But for real, what am I calling you? Plue perfects? Yeah, I know about grammar. I don't know. You tell me. Leave us a comment or send us a DM at Past Perfect Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week.